0: Hello, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week, in episode 12, we'll look at the plans the Kelly Gang made to raise money and to try and redeem their public image after the disastrous and fatal confrontation with police at Stringybark Creek. As is usual, supporting material for this episode can be found on the Australian Histories podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And there are links there for contact options too, if you'd like to get in touch. I'd be interested to know how many of you also go to that web page and actually view the supporting material each episode after listening to the pod. Secondly, I wanted to thank those of you who found the time to provide some encouraging feedback and to leave reviews over the last couple of weeks. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. For those of you just discovering the Australian History Podcast at this episode, you can start the Kelly series at episode 2 or 3 if you want to know all the background first. But for those of you who are ready for the next instalment of the Kelly saga, here we go with episode 12, Euroa part 1. In previous weeks, we've talked about the rather dodgy criminal history of the Kellys and their greater friends and family, The Fitzpatrick incident, which led to Alan and two others being jailed and Ned and Dan being hunted by the police. And then the Stringybark Creek confrontation, which led to the death of three police officers and the outlawing of the Callie gang. That shocking loss of life left the people of Victoria stunned, outraged and fearful. Hiding out since the Stringybark Creek conflict, the gang could see no resolution that might ensure the outcomes they desired, Surrender was not an option that would bring about the release of Alan and the others. And surrender could not ensure that the other local families would be left in peace by the police either. And Ned was keen to protect his own people as much as possible. So the gang settled on another rather surprising option. It was risky and bold, but completely in character for the Kellys. If they were to have any future... Ned and Joe understood the value of having their side of the story illustrated and their motivations understood, particularly after the horrors of Stringybark Creek. They wanted to show the public that the deaths there were unfortunate but unavoidable and only occurred in self-defence, that they were not the cold-blooded and brutal murderers frequently described in the news reports. They also wished to bring their story, of regional unrest and persecution of the poor in the northeast to the attention of the wider public thus setting the fitzpatrick and stringybark creek incidents into this broader context too of course one of ned's main motivators remained the unfair treatment of his mother based on the dubious evidence of a corrupt police officer and he wanted that injustice recognized as the catalyst for what followed The gang knew their future and the future of those unjustly jailed relied on the public developing some sympathy and understanding of the triggers for their actions if they were to make any headway at all. But for the moment the public sympathy lay with the slain police the papers reporting loudly on the depravity and bloodthirsty nature of the gang and rarely on any underlying motivations if there were such things. How could the ordinary person in the street in Melbourne understand what was going on in the northeast, and comprehend how this led to the unfortunate police deaths? Money would certainly be required for any kind of legal appeal, but publicity and a shift in public sympathy must be fostered to put pressure on the authorities for any appeal to succeed and for the activities of the gang to be viewed in a different light. So they set about working on those two elements in their own rather interesting fashion. There could have been a dozen different ways one might have devised a plan to win the public over, but for Ned there really was only one. His was the crash or crash-through approach. The gang made elaborate plans to escalate their bush-ranging, which would further agitate the authorities, and they decided on a bank robbery. But it would be no ordinary smash-and-grab. It is likely that various other plans leading to the liberation of Ellen Kelly might already have been considered, including a potential attempt to break them out of the jail at Beechworth soon after the court case, which was mentioned in episode 8 by Bill Williamson in Keneally's book. But that idea was immediately discounted by Williamson as any kind of viable plan, if you remember. It is also possible that during these weeks the seeds were being sown for the idea of undertaking a wider uprising a new eureka rebellion of sorts aimed squarely at the victorian government and its police force one that might liberate all in the northeast from the hard-hearted rulers of the state of victoria and we'll talk more about that idea a bit later but most likely the biggest issue was the public relations focus for the moment they needed to highlight the unfairness operating in the northeast explain the reasons for their behaviour and win over the public perceptions. What's also clear is that knowing they could expect no quarter from the authorities now that they were outlawed and that the support that they'd previously been getting from those sympathetic in the northeast could dry up or be interrupted owing to the now more focused actions of the police force since the Outlawry Act, the gang would need to come up with a source of money to allow them to function and to reward those who stayed loyal. With the known Kelly acquaintances now being regularly hauled in under that outlawry act, and jailed for long periods without charge, the Kelly gang needed to both discourage the sympathisers from the attraction of the huge rewards, but also to allow the sympathisers to pay for their impounded stock, make up for lost crops when the family members were locked up and unable to harvest, and to generally be able to survive thrive and show the police that their actions could not cower them. Booty from a bank robbery would be just the ticket for that. Now, around the time the Fallon's Apprehension Act, that outlawry Act, came into force, an interesting exchange took place in Parliament that was widely reported in the press and must have been read by Ned and Joe. Donald Cameron, the member of the Legislative Assembly for West Burke a journalist by profession, had used question time to confront the government about the origins of the Kelly outbreak, as it was referred to. He asked Premier Berry to inquire into statements made, quote, which seemed to point to the conduct of certain members of the police force as having led up to the Mansfield murders, unquote. And one assumes here he's referring to the possibility that Fitzpatrick's evidence may have been dodgy and the resulting convictions both unwise and highly contentious, especially in the northeast. Cameron further pointed to the scandalous conduct of the authorities in their completely failed pursuit of the Kellys. And here again, one assumes he's talking of the constant news reports of inadequate training, resourcing and leadership of the police force as mentioned in, well, most of the previous episodes, really. Reports such as this one in the Melbourne Herald on the 5th of November, commenting on the prowess of Ned and the gang, and reporting, quote, with respect to the capture of the Kellys, much better arrangements than at present exist must be made. The police must be properly armed and equipped, unquote. And again, slightly abridged for brevity, but from the Herald on November the 13th, Though all the papers were making similar comments, Nothing could more fully expose the inherent weakness and incapacity of the police department than the recent outrages by the Kelly gang. For some time after the tragedy, the police were sent out to pursue the murderers insufficiently armed and improperly equipped. It is painfully evident that the department has not the slightest idea as to the best means of capturing the Kellys. Altogether, the police authorities have not shown to advantage in this matter, and it is hoped they will retrieve their reputation shortly. If, instead of hunting up ruffianly bushrangers, the work to be performed were to get up a nice little shooting party for Government House, to dawdle at a fashionable flower show, or to figure to advantage in some social gathering, there could be no better or reliable places to go than the various police departments in and around the city, But where the work to be performed is that of hunting down murderers, it is left to subordinates, So, a clear dig at Chief Commissioner Standish there, and the other senior police whose names we've seen clocking on and off the hunt all this time. The article noted further that even the offer of a massive reward had not brought in any helpful information. This indicated the reluctance of the locals to help the police, and it caused the public to wonder why, perhaps. "'Nor is there the slightest prospect of the speedy capture of the ruffians. "'If they be taken, it will be more by good luck "'than good management on the part of the force. "'There is an evident want of organisation "'and an utter incapacity to deal with an emergency of this kind "'which is not creditable to the Victoria Police.'" Oh, burn! And I thought I was being a bit harsh. I'll just quote one more of the numerous tauntings that were published in the same paper. I mean, the police were really taking a kicking by the press. And I'll just remind you for context. At this time, the Victoria police officers, though earning a wage to do their jobs, could actually get the reward money, should they bring in a criminal with a reward on his head. Listen to this entry, headed, Enthusiastic Policeman by Herb Scalper, Melbourne, 2nd November 1878. To Constable Squiggles, dear sir, knowing your ardour for the discovery of crime, when there is a reward offered for the conviction of the offender, would you kindly inform me how it is that you are not sweating in the hot sun in the ranges in pursuit of the bushrangers? Or have you accumulated so many rewards as to be indifferent to the blood money offered for the capture of the Kelly brothers? Please reply and let me know how your helmet answers in climbing mountains and getting through the scrub. Yours ardently, H. Scalper. Bungle Bungle Police Station, 4th November, 1878 My dear Skelper, I was glad to get your kind letter full of such affectionate inquiries after my interests. In reply, let me tell you that we only have three troopers at this station, although we are surrounded by a population noted for their love of murder and robbery, and their delight in arson and cattle-stealing. Our chief duties are to keep our boots, bridles and horses bright and clean. Occasionally, we do what we call patrol work, i.e. two of us take a ride to bush public houses in our neighbourhood, or call on some of the settlers. We carry revolvers on these duties, but two of these won't revolve, and we have no ammunition, unquote. And so the response goes on in this vein, and is finally signed off by yours in hope, Socrates Squiggles. So the attitude to the abilities of the force is pretty savage, as we've noted before. The public were also at a loss as to why the apparently feverish efforts of the police continually failed to make any headway in capturing the Kellys. There was clearly something odd going on in the northeast. Why were so many locals unwilling to help the police or dob in the Kellys and claim the rewards? So it's no surprise that Cameron would take this opportunity in Parliament to raise his own public profile by echoing the media hysteria at the expense of the sitting government. But you do have to feel some sympathy for the local plods on the ground. The Kellys were fearsome opponents for a poorly trained and perhaps less than committed outfit. With Kelly's invincible notoriety growing by the day, anyone would be scared to get too close. Without a foolproof plan, quality equipment and a professional and skilled leader to drive it. And so far, none of the police leadership team had managed to shine in that role or display the skill and leadership required, except maybe poor old Kennedy. Premier Graham responded to Cameron's question, saying that the government would instigate a searching inquiry should evidence show a need, and while he was clearly not all that keen, there was a Royal Commission into the Kelly outbreak after it was all over. But crucially, Ned misinterpreted Cameron's open criticism of the police and the northeastern authorities as a sign that he was a potential ally, aware of the unrest and disenfranchisement in the northeast. Ned assumed him sympathetic, suggesting he might be the one to take up their cause. They naively mistook his comments for genuine interest, rather than the usual cynical argy-bargy of Parliament. Cameron was unlikely to have any genuine interest in the background and reasons for the troubles in the Northeast beyond what embarrassment this could heap on the Berry government. While the antagonism between many of the selectors and the authorities in the Northeast was well known to the government and the police management in Melbourne, there was not much interest in addressing any underlying issues. The Callies, not understanding why Cameron was interested, thought to write him a letter explaining all. They expected Cameron would read this letter in Parliament and thus begin the desired investigations into the incompetence and corruption rife in the Northeast, and hopefully lead to a push for a reassessment of his mother's trial. Their letter would address the very questions Cameron had asked about the causes of the Kelly outbreak and, when read in Parliament, would ensure the public knew the whole story too. So they began a draft, which would later be known to us as the Cameron Letter. The government copy of this letter survives, and I'll read the copy reproduced in Corfield's Kelly Encyclopedia at the end of this episode if you'd like to hear it. It's pretty wordy and quite confusing if you don't remember all the names, but uh, it's got some interesting things to say in parts. So then, along with a way to get some much-needed money, the Euroa hold-up was also designed as a massive publicity stunt to gain the gang some positive PR and get their explanations out there, widely published and discussed. So the gang worked on their outrageously elaborate plan and began preparations for the raid. The assistance of many others outside the gang would be required to make the Euroa hold up a success. It was certainly a complicated and daring plan that they settled on, But the gang, and probably other sympathisers in the background too, seem to have spent plenty of time reconnoitering and considering all manner of eventualities. To me it seemed desperately over-engineered and risky, but this audacious plan would see Ned consolidate his fearless gentleman bushranger identity as a figure larger than life, being clever and commanding and in control. It seems likely that several bank sites in a number of towns were considered for the robbery, but the gang decided on Euroa as the best target. As always, they had excellent intelligence, and little leaks of new bush-ranging activity being planned made their way to the police, though of course the potential sites mentioned for the activities were always far enough away to put the police off the actual scent. Indeed, Ned's uncle, Pat Quinn, had apparently sent a letter to Nicholson suggesting the gang was soon to head back over the border around Albury. You can see why McIntyre had praised Kelly as being like a Boer War general. His tactics were just the kind employed in foxing the enemy in a guerrilla war. So with all the information and misinformation bouncing around the region, there is absolutely no doubt that many other locals were helping one way or another too. According to Caulfield, Joe found out that the Dry Creek gold mine had recently deposited gold at the Euroa National Bank. So that might be one reason why they chose that particular branch. And I note that sources generally say Euroa National Bank, but the plaque at the site, photographed in Caulfield's book, says Colonial Bank, established 1856. So there may have been a name change, but we'll stick with calling it the National Anyway, while some other banks in the region had guards on site, this one did not. And Euroa had only one policeman stationed in town, so a police presence near the bank was unlikely on any given day. They found out other useful information about the branch, such as who would be in attendance, and that while the bank might officially be closed at 4pm, the door there was usually left ajar, so that the local station master could come in and deposit the cash after the 3.30 train had left. They knew there would be some weapons in the bank, and they knew the manager lived on site with his family, so all these elements were considered when they formulated their plans. They decided to use the nearby Faithfuls Creek run as a base for their robbery and as a platform to begin their public relations drive. The Faithful's Creek site, also known as Young Husband's Station, was an outstation of the 80,000-acre Euroa Run, owned by Isaac Younghusband, a pastoralist and wool manager, and Andrew Lyle, MLA, a politician and businessman. So using the property of these establishment moguls would set just the right tone for the beginning of Ned's us and them downtrodden selector publicity drive. Faithful's Creek was an ideal distance from Euroa, just three and a half miles, and it had all the necessary buildings and supplies for them to comfortably bail up a few workers while they rested, ate and fed their horses in preparation for the robbery. The working people were not to be inconvenienced any more than was necessary for the task. The gang would take their time, charm their forced guests, and ensure the robbery would be exciting and positive news. It's highly probable that Faithfuls also employed a number of Kelly sympathisers, already working on site, and they could be very handy to have quietly on side should things start going pear-shaped for the gang. The main railway line ran past only about 150 metres west of the homestead, but the Kellys were not concerned about that, and had plans for disabling the telegraph lines that ran alongside the tracks when the time came. Two other pieces of information probably helped in setting the exact date for the robbery. Jones suggests that Joe had met with a sympathiser, Ben Gould, at Euroa on one of his planning trips. He discovered that on Tuesday the 10th of December, Euroa was to host the sitting of a licensing court in the afternoon so that could keep a few of the town officials distracted. The other news was that a poor local lad had just been killed in a riding accident, and his funeral was to be held that Tuesday afternoon, perhaps ensuring that many of the other local townsfolk would have their attention elsewhere as well. Now Ben Gould, you might recall from earlier episodes, had been a friend of the Kellys from way back. It was his cart stuck in the mud that the teenage Ned helped rescue using a horse belonging to another hawker without permission. The dispute that followed led on to Ned being charged with quote, sending an indecent letter to a female, unquote. Remember the castrating of calves that was going on nearby? Well, enough said. Anyway, young Ned spent six months in jail as a result of that charge. So Gould seems to have been completely in on the Euroa plan. He was reportedly seen in and around Euroa prior to the hold-up, and it was noticed that he was ordering large amounts of food. Clearly, he was casing the joint and getting supplies for the gang. Indeed, he was so steadfast and obvious in his pro-Kelly attitude that he was suspected of being involved in the robbery somehow, and was remanded in custody for several weeks afterwards. In later years, he did admit to regularly assisting the gang and was frequently instrumental in providing them with supplies while they were on the run. On Monday, December 9th, the gang discreetly made their way to the property at Faithfuls Creek, arriving there around lunchtime. As the lunch bells were rung and the workers came in, the Kellys quietly rounded them up and herded them into a large outbuilding, locking them in. Amongst those rounded up was one Andrew Morton. It seems that Morton may have met Ned in Pentridge and just happened to be employed at Faithfuls Creek Run, though their acquaintance was not made known to anyone at the time, so there is speculation he may have been one of several secret sympathisers on the site. Another worker was called John Carson, and some historians speculate that Carson may actually have been Aaron Sherritt or perhaps Wild Wright. Ned obviously had prior warning about one worker there, named George Stevens, an ex policeman working as a groom at the station, as he made sure to bail him up first. Stevens was in the stables with the aforementioned Carson at the time. Mr. Fitzgerald, the husband of the Faithful's Creek cook and housekeeper, walked down to the stables with Ned on the pretext of asking Stevens about the whereabouts of Macaulay, the station overseer. Ned said to Stevens, Do you know who I am? And he replied, Perhaps you're Ned Kelly. Ned answered, You're a damn good guesser and drew his revolver. Stevens was told to get oats for the horses and with Carson was then removed to the lockup. Another station hand was called Peter Chivers, though Jones contends that the other workers were never identified by the police. And this does seem like a huge oversight to us in this modern era. A great deal of relevant and potentially valuable evidence was just left unexplored if the police did fail to record and question everyone in attendance. The women at the homestead were also bailed up on the gang's arrival, of course, but after being courteously warned about risking the lives of the men should they disobey, they were then left to their business in the house, providing food for the gang and their prisoners. Later reports indicated that they didn't feel threatened by the gang, so again the gentleman bushranger profile was being developed here. Indeed, many reported very positive impressions of the gang, from Joe later playing the accordion for their amusement to Ned helping lift heavy items for the women. So warm did the interactions seem that some historians suggest that the Fitzgeralds that's the station hand who accompanied Ned to the stables and his wife, the cook and housekeeper may also have been sympathisers as they didn't seem overly rattled and certainly complied with all the gang's requirements helping to keep everyone calm and comfortable. So the ratio of difficult customers to allies of the gang seemed pretty high, if the suspicions were correct. As other visitors arrived on the property in the course of the afternoon, they were also bailed up, disarmed and moved to the shed to be held overnight. And even as the numbers rose over the course of the afternoon, the gang appeared to remain pretty relaxed. The increased risk with every new arrival makes me anxious just thinking about it. So I find it fascinating to consider what level of ego and confidence one must have to think this plan was the best option. One arrival just before sundown did provide some excitement, though in all likelihood even this was a ruse, a show for the genuine prisoners to hide the assistance being provided for the gang. A travelling hawker named James Gloucester and his teenage assistant Frank Beecroft arrived at Faithful's Creek with a cart full of clothes and boots and began making camp in the yard. Initially, he appeared to ignore the advice that the station had been bailed up and just went about his business. But when Ned loudly confronted him with, quote, I am Ned Kelly, the son of Red Kelly, and a better man never stood in two shoes, unquote, Gloucester made a show of going for his revolver in the wagon and the onlookers witnessed plenty of shouting and threatening before they convinced Gloucester to surrender and stay alive. Ned berated Gloucester, but in the end graciously allowed him and his assistant to join the prisoners for the evening's entertainment. It's commonly suggested that Gloucester was probably a friend of the aforementioned Ben Gould and therefore also highly likely to be in cahoots with the gang. With the station overseer, Macaulay, having returned about 4.30, around 14 men, some real prisoners, and perhaps a third being known to the Kellys and keeping quiet about it, were locked up by nightfall. And they all settled in for a Q&A session with Ned as he did his guard shift. And it's here that the charismatic Ned shines. Apparently, he talked engagingly and passionately about his family problems with the police and especially about the perjuring Fitzpatrick being responsible for innocent persons ending up in jail, including his beloved mother and her tiny baby. And he talked about the targeted persecution of their selector neighbours by the police and the squatters who had the corrupt authorities in their pockets. The chief commissioner of police would come running hundreds of miles north to the squatter McBean when he called but no one takes up the causes of the selectors and the police always harassing them over missing stock and every small rumour, no matter that no proof exists, etc., etc., etc. And so the deliberate disseminating of their side of the story had begun. And we start to see the elements of Ned standing up for his poor neighbours and the oppressed Irish Catholic selectors, which later grows into him being touted as a sort of Aussie Robin Hood doing the bidding of the downtrodden. Ned answered questions and explained what had occurred at Stringybark Creek, denying a charge of murder, instead describing how it became self-defence when the officers failed to put up their hands and lay down their weapons, instead trying to fire on the gang. And here, with his first captive audience, Kelly takes the whole blame for all the shootings at Stringybark Creek, saying no others did any shooting. He also spoke of the Cameron letter he was writing, which would explain everything in detail for the interest of Cameron, the Parliament and the good people of Victoria. But ideas for some future confrontations must already have been in Ned's head, at least, as he mentioned that evening that if his mother did not get justice and were not released, he would overturn a train, a pretty confronting threat of terrorism we would call this today, and this threat was reported to the authorities afterwards, as he must have known it would be, just to instil the right amount of fear should they not heed his words. The forced guests were all fed and entertained throughout the evening, and it seems that this extra time allowed by balling up the prisoners the day before the actual robbery and the cheery conditions created for his captive audience at the time were all designed to add to the mystique of the gang and to elicit sympathy and goodwill amongst a wider audience once the reports got out and the word spread. Their bravado and the command of the situation would also encourage a healthy dose of respect for the abilities of the gang and their capacity for carrying out their threats. So just to reflect again, there was the option to simply ride into town, rob the bank and ride off into the bush if it was only about money But this was clearly a bigger PR exercise. And it's this very behaviour that serves to make the Kelly story so interesting, I think. It's a much bigger and bolder story than one imagines in the beginning. Though the hubris and the massive ego on display throughout does astound me. At dawn, Ned joined Joe back in the homestead. He'd been writing the final copies of their explanatory letter to Cameron in bold red ink. And he'd also made a copy for Police Superintendent Sadlier. After lunch, the gang was focused on preparations for heading out to Euroa. They had the manager write out a Faithful's Creek check for them to present at the bank, and they disabled the nearby telegraph lines, taking the trouble to smash the insulators, chop down a few of the poles, and completely tangle the lines. As they were readying to leave, a horseman and three men in a cart appeared near the homestead. That party had been out hunting kangaroo, and they were making to open the nearby railway gates and cross the line. At the same time, Joe had intercepted four railway workers who'd come down the track on a trolley. So eight more men had just appeared as they were preparing to depart. Ned dashed up to the hunting party with his revolver drawn, and he stopped them at the crossing, declaring... Turn the horse around, the station is stuck up. Knowing the Kellys were still at large was in the forefront of everyone's mind locally. One of the men in the cart, apparently being a snarly character by nature, and seeing Ned had handcuffs in his belt, assumed that Ned was a local constable, and he railed at being ordered about by such an inferior officer, even if there were bushrangers at the station. He demanded to know his authority to speak to them in such a way. Ned was amused by the man's confusion, and he played along, then accusing the gentleman in the cart of maybe being Kelly's men. Again the man objected, yelling, I'll report you to your superior officer. When the rider came over to see what was going on at the cart, his friend told him, the Kellys are about, and so they all scrabbled around looking to load their weapons and assist the constable in capturing the Kellys. But the joke had worn off for Ned by then. He now forcefully insisted they disarm, and he bailed them up, removing their weapons, and took them back to be locked up with the others, including Joe's railway workers. As they brought them all inside, Ned explained to Stevens there, These gentlemen don't seem to understand or comprehend who I am. And so Stevens did the introductions. Gentlemen, allow me to introduce Sir Edward Kelly and his party. So the captives now numbered around the mid-twenties, as well as the household women who'd been feeding and attending to them all. The Kelly gang now helped themselves to a new set of clothes from Gloucester's wagon, looking more like respectable townsfolk for their trip to Euroa. The usefulness of the hawker's arrival now becomes a little more suspect, don't you think? And, to top it off, the young assistant, Beecroft, was dragged into driving the hawker's cart into town with the gang, as it was well known in town and unlikely to attract any attention so more and more suspect really leaving joe alone in charge of the prisoners ned and dan took the carts into town beecroft driving one and dan using the cart taken from the shooting party steve had ridden on ahead and was waiting for them at the northeastern hotel in euroa perhaps Byrne was left there in charge because he was the most reliable maybe the smartest and least prone to panic But he could probably rely on the help of the planted sympathisers should things get out of hand while the rest of the gang was away. And from later accounts, he did seem pretty relaxed about the whole thing. Joe was even able to wander away and bail up another arrival while the lads were in town. The population of folks wandering about the area is much bigger than I would have assumed for the day. Anyway, while Joe was there alone, George Stevens did suggest a plan to try and overcome him, but he was prevented from acting by the other hostages. They argued this was nothing to do with them. They didn't want him giving the gang any excuse to shoot them, so just leave him be, and they'd all be freed unharmed soon enough. For some, it would have been an exciting adventure they could tell people about. For others, quite an anxious wait, I'm sure, to see what might happen on the gang's return. But now our podcast time is drawing to a close, so we'll leave Joe here on guard at the Faithfuls Creek station and we'll wave off the rest of the gang for this episode. Next time, we'll look at what happened during the robbery at Euroa. We'll see if the elaborate plan paid off and how the prisoners fared. We'll also look at the response from the press and the public. Somehow, I don't feel like the police are going to get a good rap. It's just a hunch. Now as usual there are a few images and the reference list on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and for those of you who would care to know what Ned and Joe wrote to Cameron I will record the reproduction from Corfield's book and attach that to the end of the podcast here so do keep listening if that's of interest to you. It is pretty wordy, and it can be confusing if you can't recall all the names. He's a bit of a rambler, our Ned. But um, there's some interesting stuff in it if you'd like to stay on. For everyone else, take care and enjoy discovering the weird and wonderful history all around you. We'll talk again in two weeks to finish off the Euroa episodes. Cheers! Okay, from Corfield's book, he suggests the letter was dictated by Ned Kelly and written by Joe Byrne. For some reason, and unusually, it's written in red ink. And the ink bottle itself was left at the Faithfuls Creek Station, so that helped confirm that it in fact came from the Kelly gang. Written to Dom- Donald Cameron, MLA. Dear Sir, take no offence if I take the opportunity of writing a few lines to you, wherein I wish to state a few remarks concerning the case of Trooper Fitzpatrick against Mrs Kelly, W Skillion, and W Williamson, and to state the facts of the case to you. It seems to me impossible to get any justice without I make a statement to someone that will take notice of it, as it is no use me complaining about anything that the police may choose to say or swear against me and the public in their ignorance and blindness, will undoubtedly back them up to their utmost. No doubt I am now placed in the very peculiar circumstances, and you might blame me for it, but if you know how I have been wronged and persecuted, you would say I cannot be blamed. In April last, an information was, which must have come under your notice, sworn against me for shooting Trooper Fitzpatrick, which was false, and my mother, with an infant baby, and brother-in-law and another neighbour were taken for aiding and abetting and attempting to murder him, a charge which they are truly innocent as a child unborn. During my stay in the King River, I run in a wild bull and I gave him to Lydecker, who afterwards sold him to Carr, and he killed him for beef. Some time afterwards, I was told I was blamed for stealing this bull from Whitty. I asked Whitty on the Moyu course why he blamed me for stealing the bull, and he said, he had found the bull and he never blamed me for stealing him. He said it was the policeman who told him that I stole the bull. Sometime afterwards I heard that I was blamed for stealing a mob of calves from Whitty and Farrell, which I never had anything to do with, and along with this and other talk I began to think that they wanted something to talk about. Whitty and Burns not being satisfied with all the picked land on the King River and Bobby Creek and their run of stock on the certificate ground free, and no one interfering with them, paid heavy rent for all the open ground, so as a poor man could not keep his stock, and impound every beast they could catch, even off government roads. If a poor man happened to leave his horse or a bit of potty calf outside his paddock, it would be impounded. I have known over sixty head of horses to be in one day impounded by Whitty and Burns, all belonging to poor men of the district they would have to leave their harvest or ploughing and go to Oxley and then perhaps not have the money enough to release them and have to give a bill of sale or borrow the money, which is no easy matter, along with all this sort of work. The policeman stole a horse from George King, my stepfather, and had him in Whitty and Jeffrey's paddock up until he left the force, and this was the cause of me and my stepfather, George King, stealing Whitty's horses and selling them to Baumgarten and those other men. The pick of them was sold at Howlong, and the rest was sold to Baumgarten, who was a perfect stranger to me and, I believe, an honest man. No man had anything to do with the horses but me and George King. William Cook, who was convicted of Whitty's horses, had nothing to do with them, nor was he ever in my company at Peterson's, the Germans, at Howlong. The brand was altered by me and George King, and the horses were sold as straight. Any man requiring horses would have brought them the same as those men, and would have been potted the same, and I consider Whitty ought to do something towards the release of those innocent men, otherwise there will be collision between me and him, as I can, to his satisfaction, prove I took J. Welsh's black mare and the rest of the horses, which I will prove to him in the next issue, and after those have been found and the row being over them, I wrote a letter to Mr S of Lake Rowan to advertise my horses for sale, as I was intent to sell out. I sold them afterwards at Benalla and the rest in New South Wales and left Victoria as I wished to see certain parts of the country. And very shortly afterwards there was a warrant for me, and as I since hear, the police sergeants Steele, Strawn, and Fitzpatrick and others searched the 11 Mile and every other place in the district for me, and a man named Newman, who had escaped from Wangaratta Police for months before April 15th, 1878, I heard how the police used to be blowing that they would shoot me first and then cry surrender, how they came to the house when there was no one there but women and Superintendent Brooks Smith used to say, see all the men I have out today, I will have many more out tomorrow and blow him into pieces as small as paper that is in our guns. And they used to repeatedly rush into the house revolver in hand and upset the milk dishes and empty the flour out on the ground and break tins of eggs and throw the meat out of the cask onto the floor and dirty and destroy all provisions, which can be proved, and shove the girls in front of them and into the rooms like dogs and abuse and insult them. Detective Ward and Constable Hayes took out their revolvers and threatened to shoot the girls and children whilst Mrs Skillion was absent, the eldest being with her. The greatest murderers and ruffians would not be guilty of such an action. This sort of cruelty and disgraceful conduct to my brothers and sisters, who had no protection, coupled with the conviction of my mother and those innocent men, certainly make my blood boil. As I don't think there is a man living could have the patience to suffer what I did, they were not satisfied with frightening and insulting my sisters night and day and destroying their provisions and lagging my mother with an infant baby and those innocent men but should follow me and my brother who was innocent of having anything to do with my stolen horses into the wilds where he had been quietly digging and doing well neither molesting nor interfering with anyone and i was not there long and on october 25 i came to the track of police horses between Tabletop and the bogs, and crossed them and went to Emu Swamp. And returning home, I came on more police tracks, making for our camp. I told my mates, and me and my brother went out the next morning and found the police camped at the Shingle Hut with long firearms, and we came to the conclusion our doom was sealed unless we could take their firearms. As we had nothing but guns and a rifle if they came on us at our work or camp, we had no chance, only to die like dogs. As we thought our country was woven with police and we might have a chance of fighting them if we had the firearms, as it generally takes 40 to 1, we approached the spring as close as we could get to the camp, the intervening space being clear. We saw two men at a log. They got up, and one took a double barreled fowling piece and one drove the horses down and hobbled them there against the tent. And we thought there was more men in the tent those being on sentry. We could have shot those two men without speaking, but not wishing to take life, we waited. McIntyre laid the gun against the stump, and Lonigan sat on the log. I advanced, my brother Dan keeping McIntyre covered. I called on them, throw up your hands. McIntyre obeyed, and never attempted to reach for his gun or revolver. Lonigan ran to a battery of logs and put his head up to take aim at me. Then I shot him, or he would have shot me, as I know well. I asked who was in the tent. McIntyre replied, no one. I approached the camp and took possession of their revolvers and fowling piece, which I loaded with bullets instead of shot. I told McIntyre I didn't want to shoot him or any other man that would surrender. I explained Fitzpatrick's falsehood, which no policeman can be ignorant of. He said he knew Fitzpatrick had wronged us, but he could not help it. He said he intended to leave the police force on account of his bad health. His life was insured. The other two men, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, who had no firearms, came up when they heard the shot fired and went back to our camp for fear the police might call there in our absence and surprise us on our arrival. My brother went back to the spring and I stopped at the log with McIntyre. Kennedy and Scanlon came up. McIntyre said he would get them to surrender if I spared their lives, as well as his. I said I did not know either him, Scanlon or Kennedy and had nothing against them and would not shoot any of them if they gave up their firearms and promised to leave the force, as it's the meanest billet in the world. They are worse than cold-blooded murderers and hangmen. He said he was sure they would never follow me any more. I gave him my word that I would give them a chance. McIntyre went up to Kennedy, Scanlon being behind with a rifle and revolver. I called on them to throw up their hands. Scanlon slewed his horse around to gallop away, but turned again and, as quick as thought, fired at me with his rifle, and was in the act of firing again when I shot him. Kennedy alighted off the side of his horse and got behind a tree and opened hot fire. McIntyre got on Kennedy's horse and galloped away. I could have shot him if I chose, as he was right against me, but rather than break my word I let him go. My brother advanced from the spring. Kennedy fired at him and ran, and he found neither of us were dead. I followed him. He got behind another tree and fired at me again. I shot him in the armpit when he was behind the tree. He dropped his revolver and ran again and slewed around and I fired the gun again and shot him through the right chest as I did not know he had dropped his revolver and was turning to surrender. He could not live or I would have let him go. Had they been my own brothers I could not help shooting them or else lie down and let them shoot me, which they would have done had their bullets been directed as they intended them. "'But as for handcuffing Kennedy to a tree "'or cutting his ear off "'or brutally treating any of them, "'it's a cruel falsehood. "'If Kennedy's ear was cut off, "'it had been done since. "'I put a cloak over him "'and left him honourable as I could. "'And if they were my own brothers, "'I could not have been more sorry for them. "'With the exception of Lonigan, "'I did not begrudge him what bit of lead he got, "'as he was the flashest, meanest man "'that I had any account against. "'For him, Fitzpatrick, Sergeant Whelan, Constable Day and and King, the bootmaker, once tried to handcuff me at Benella, and when they could not, Fitzpatrick tried to choke me. Lonigan caught me by the... deleted, and would have killed me, but was not able. Mr McGuinness came up, and I allowed him to put the handcuffs on when the police were bested. This cannot be called willful murder, for I was compelled to shoot them in my own defence, or lie down like a cur and die. "'Certainly their wives and children are to be pitied, "'but those men came into the bush "'with the intention of shooting me down like a dog, "'and yet they know and acknowledge I have been wronged. "'And is my mother and her infant baby "'and my poor little brothers and sisters not to be pitied? "'More so who has got no alternative, "'only to put up with the brutal and unmanly conduct of the police, "'who have never had any relations or a mother "'or must have forgotten them. "'I was never convicted of horse-stealing.' I was once arrested by Constable Hall and 14 more men in Greeter, and there was a subscription raised for Hall by persons who had too much money about Greeter in honour of Hall arresting Wild Wright and Gunn. Wright and Gunn were potted, and Hall could not pot me for the horse-stealing, but with the subscription money he gave £20 to James Murdoch, who recently had been hung in Wagga Wagga, and on Murdoch's evidence I was found guilty of receiving knowing to be stolen which J. Wright, W. Ambrose, J. Ambrose, T. H. Hatcher and W. Williamson and others can prove. I was innocent of knowing the horse was stolen. And I was once accused of taking a hawker by the name of McCormick's horse to pull another hawker named Ben Gould out of the bog. At the time I was taken by Hall and his fourteen assistants, therefore I dare not strike any of them, as Hall was a great cur. And as for Dan, he was never tried of assaulting a woman, P. Butler sentenced him to three months without an option of fine for willfully destroying property, a sentence which there was no law to uphold, and yet they had to do their sentence. And their prosecutor, Mr. D. Goodman, since got four years for perjury concerning that same property. The Minister of Justice should inquire into this respecting their sentence, and he will find a wrong jurisdiction given by Butler on October 19, 1877 at Benella. And these are the only charges was ever proved against either of us. Therefore, we are falsely represented. The reports of bullets having been fired into the bodies of the troopers after death is false. The coroner should be consulted. I have no intention of asking mercy for myself, of any mortal man, or apologising, but I wish to give timely warning that if my people do not get justice and those innocents released from jail... And the police wear their uniform i shall be forced to seek revenge of everything of the human race for the future i will not take innocent life if justice is given but as the police are afraid or ashamed to wear their uniform therefore every man's life is in danger as i was outlawed without cause and cannot be no worse and have but once to die and if the public do not see justice done I will seek revenge for the name and character which has been given to me and my relations, while God gives me strength to pull a trigger. The witness, which can prove Fitzpatrick's falsehood, can be found by advertising, and if it is not done immediately, horrible disasters shall follow. Fitzpatrick shall be the cause of greater slaughter to the rising generation than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads of Ireland. For had I robbed, plundered, ravished and murdered everything I met, my character could not be painted blacker than it is at present. But, thank God, my conscience is clear as the snow in Peru. And as I hear, a picked jury, among which a retired sergeant of police, has impanelled on the trial, and David Lindsay, who gave evidence for the crown, is a shanty-keeper having no licence and is liable to heavy fine and keep a book of information for the police, and his character needs no comment, for he is capable of rendering Fitzpatrick any assistance he requires for a conviction, as he could be broke any time Fitzpatrick chose to inform on him. I am really astonished to see members of the Legislative Assembly led astray by such articles as the police. For, while an outlaw reigns, their pocket swells, tis double pay and country girls. By concluding, as I have no more paper unless I rob for it, if I get justice, I will cry a go, for I need no lead or powder to avenge my cause. And if words be louder, I will oppose your laws. With no offence, remember your railroads. And a sweet goodbye from Edward Kelly, a forced outlaw.